All right, we got one person who's clapping and who's happy. I appreciate that, my sister. I gave her $20 to clap when I came on stage, so this is, I owe you. I got two tens in my pocket. Hey, we're about to hit the portion of our service uh, where we're about to have the word for today. Um, I said this earlier t um, at the 10 a.m., and um, man, this morning I woke up thinking about how often I kind of have, I'm on autopilot. Anybody ever do that? And you kind of just come expecting the same thing. And, you know, this is, this is a stop you do before brunch and you have 6,000 things on your head, in your mind, in your heart. Maybe you got into an argument this morning. Maybe there's something you're struggling with, uh, whatever. Um, man, I, I really hope that as we approach the scripture and the, and the word today, uh, that God, uh, we give the God the space to do something in our lives. All right? So I'm going to read the scripture. Uh, it comes from Romans, the eighth chapter. We're in the series on Romans 8, uh, verses 14 through 17. It should be on the screens beside me. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. Give it up for Aswan on his way out, y'all. Morning, Renaissance. By show of hands, how many of us love to travel? Okay, nice. A lot of people like to travel. I love to travel as well, at least I'm starting to. Uh, Jordan and I got a chance to take our wives to Austin maybe a year ago. We hung out, and um, Austin is dope. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. The food is great. Okay. Uh, the food is fantastic. But uh, we went to this, like, graffiti park. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's like an abandoned castle type of thing. Everybody brings spray, spray paint, and all kind of artists go, and they tag up. And it's amazing. It looks amazing. But the cool part about it is it has these tiers. And you could either go up on the side, like through this dirt road, or you could kind of climb up through uh, the actual levels and get to the top. And so we, the goal was to get to the top, you know, after we took a couple flicks. But we were with the world-famous Jessica Rice, the world-famous blogger. So we know the pictures were going to be amazing. So I couldn't wait to get in line for my pictures. But when we got up to the top, there was a couple who was there, and they were doing headstands. Exactly. Hmm. I don't know why they were doing headstands, but this is what they were doing. Now, I have to describe uh, the gentleman that was started doing the headstands because this dude was swole. Like, it looked like he couldn't put his arms to his side, but he looked kind of agile, so he looked, he looked like he was a little bit flexible. And so this dude gets down, and he's doing a headstand, but it's not really that good, Myra. It's okay. It's decent. Now, his, his homegirl, she's doing headstands, and it's not really that good. It's okay. Me, I'm sitting back like I absolutely could do a headstand much better than them. I could. I really can. Like, people don't notice about me, but I'm kind of athletic. You know what I'm saying? I got some pectorals, too. Now my, now, my wife gets interested in this whole idea of headstands, and she's like, yo, let me show them my yoga style. Like, so she gets in, and she starts trying to do things, too. And I'm like, I think to myself, like, yo, why is she so interested in doing headstands? Like, does she peep his pecs or something? Like, does she... Like, what is she interested in? So I decided 
I'm going to win my boo back. Okay? I'm going to shut it down. It's time for me to show that I could actually do a headstand. So I bust out the headstand and I kill it. I kill it. I stay up there longer. I think we got pictures of it. I stay up there longer than him. I look at her, I kind of wink my eye like, you know what I'm saying? I did that thing, you know what I mean? But I was so sure. After watching them, I was so sure that I could actually nail this headstand. And so uh, I, I, bet I started thinking about this idea of assurance, and I did some research, and uh, when you think about human needs, here's one thing I learned. Assurance is part of what we need as humans. And it's kind of crazy. I, I never really put those two together, but when you, when you refer to human needs, usually um, the psychologist and most of the research refers to Maslow and what he did back in the 1940s and how he created this hierarchy of, of needs. And, um, and in there, uh, uh, most of the researchers said af after that, new research has arose, and they've been giving some new ideas to these human needs, and assurance is absolutely in there. I read an article in Psychology Today. I, I picked a quote. I want you to, to listen to it. Uh, this is how it starts. It says this, needs are not hierarchical. Life is messier than that. Somebody say amen. Needs are, like most other things in nature, and interactive, dynamic system, but they are anchored in our ability to make social connections. Maslow's model needs rewiring, so, it's, so it matches our brains. Listen to this. Belongingness is the driving force of human behavior, not a third-tier activity. The system of human needs from bottom to top, shelter, safety, sex, leadership, community, competence, and trust are dependent on our ability to connect with others. Belonging to a community provides the sense of security and agency that makes our brains happy and helps keep us safe. See, in the world of psychology, this idea of assurance can take many forms. Sometimes it's called positive affirmation. Sometimes it's called self-confidence. But the re reality is we all need it. Another quick point in that research I found, if we don't have this level of assurance, uh, when we get it, let me say it this way, there's actually oxytocin that's released in our brain, and what the research says is that your brain can't even function properly without oxytocin. So how important is assurance in the life of us as humans? And that joint was crazy. It opened my eyes. And here's a question. Wouldn't it be dope if we had that same assurance, if we had that same confidence that I had in busting that headstand in our relationship with God? If we had this assurance that, that we knew how God actually felt about us? Because I would imagine if we are assured with how God feels about us, you and I would function differently. See, by its very nature, assurance produces confidence, and it produces a confidence in our life that you and I need. Assurance will change everything about you. It produces a confidence that is necessary, not only just for life, but it includes our spiritual life. And here's the dope part about it. God wants you and I to have that assurance. Assurance will change everything about you, and God wants you to have it. 
Now, I don't want to do a lot of the talking today. I want our scripture to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So let's go back to uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 14, um, where Jordan read for us. Should be on your screens. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we, cre- we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if God's children also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Renaissance, I want to jump in this morning. I want you to hear this language. I'm going to zone in on verse 16. It says this, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And so we have to look deeper at this word testify. We have to ask ourselves, why did Paul use the word testify here? And testify means to give evidence as a witness in a courtroom. And Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit provides evidence to our human spirit that we are children of God. See, in every legal situation where there's a witness on the stand testifying, that witness was called to the stand because there are questions about the truth. That's one, and, and excuse me, this, the witness uh, is called to testify because that is the main reason they're there to show what the actual truth is. Lawyers choose them specifically because they believe that these particular witnesses will be successful in convincing a judge and a jury about the truth of something. In shows like Law and Order, we see how critical witnesses are and the length to which lawyers go to get them. The only reason they do that is because their testimony, the witnesses of those testimony, the, the testimony of those witnesses will leave the judge and jury with such conviction that they will see the truth. And Renaissance, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of every Christian. He is on the stand testifying that all the Christians in the world belong to God. They are his children, and no prosecutor can change that. No matter how compelling the argument, the Holy Spirit's testimony of this truth is guaranteed to win the case. And here's what I think Paul is doing. Here is where I think we can take away a little bit of application. Paul says the Holy Spirit is testifying with our spirit. And so this is not happening in some cosmic courtroom. You know where it's happening? It's happening in your heart. It's happening in the heart of every believer where we are wrestling with the truth of what God says about us. We, we want to believe, we, we hear God saying that, that we are his children, but then there's an accuser that tells us, no, you're not. You've, been, you, you've done wrong in the past. You've given in to, to bad habits. Uh, uh, you fall short of the standard of God. And what Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit stands up and he testifies, and he begins to say, hey, listen, no, you're not. You're a child of God. Hey, but I've, but I've messed up. You're a child of God. But, but, I, but my heart's not right. You're a child of God. The Spirit te- himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Unfortunately, most Christians, if we were to be honest, we don't live that way. I know that I don't. And the best lens 
uh, to kind of help us understand this, I think, is this idea of um, ob- objective reality versus subjective reality. And I want to take our time here. I want to explain these two phrases and give you a good understanding of these concepts. Um, objective reality is independent of me. It has all to do with something being true regardless of my own thoughts or feelings. It doesn't matter if you think it's true. Objective reality doesn't matter if you feel like it's true. Objective reality doesn't matter if you believe it's true. It's true irregardless of you and your feelings towards it. Good example, gravity is true whether we believe it or not. Just go jump off a building. I'm not saying you should do that. Subjective reality is, however, all about what I perceive and what you and I perceive to be true. Meaning, it is only true if you and I perceive it to be. In a lot of ways, we miss out on the objective realities that God wants us to live in because our subjective realities restrict us and keep us hostage and in bondage to this jail. I was looking for an analogy or a way to kind of help us understand this objective and subjective reality. Um, Came across this story uh, about Houdini. And uh, Houdini, as we know, is the the masterful escape artist. And uh, here's what he did. Houdini maintained a standing challenge that he could get out of any locked jail within an hour. The only stipulations where he would be allowed to enter the cell in his street clothes and nobody could watch him work. A small town in the British Isles accepted Houdini's challenge after they had constructed what many people thought was an an escape-proof jail. Upon entering the jail, Houdini immediately, he gets in the jail, he immediately gets to work. And he's trying to unlock the lock. He's trying to do all the things that he does. He pulls out his tools. He's trying to do all the things that Houdini does. Now, the story says that it goes for two hours. That's an hour longer than what he said he would do it in. And in exhaustion, Houdini gets so tired, he puts his tools down, and he leans on the door, and the door cracks open. And the town tried to trick Houdini. They never bolted the door shut. They wanted him to to work feverishly at this. They didn't think he would figure out that he was actually free the whole time. And here's what we're saying. Uh, Many of us, we live just like that. The objective reality is God says who we are to him, but we live like we're not his children. Many Christians are locked into fear, yet the objective reality is that God has cast out all fear with his perfect love. Many Christians are imprisoned by their past or current failures, yet the objective reality is that God, through Jesus, has erased and removed all condemnation. Many Christians are bound by their appetites and emotions. And as we talked about in our Roman series, yet the objective reality is that there is no obligation to give in to the flesh. And so there is this tension. Renaissance, I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it in my life. Even now, I feel this tension that what the objective reality of my life is and what the subjective reality of my life is. And this is where we often find ourselves. And what I love about our text this morning is Paul is implicitly saying, hey, I want to shape your subjective reality in such a way that it matches 
your objective reality. I want you to live with the assurance of who God says you are. Because when you do, man, you actually live the way God has designed you to live. But we really don't live like that. If we were honest, if I were honest, we don't live like that. Here's a reason or here's ways that I see where my subjective reality doesn't match my objective reality. Here's one. I don't see God's activity. See, the Christian life is built on the idea of faith. And the root of faith is having confidence in what you can't see. So if the very nature of our life as Christians is based on this idea that we are to walk, we are to believe, even though we can't see, man, I am going to struggle, and I struggle, and I don't know if you struggle, but I struggle with believing the objective reality of my life. And here's the truth. Subject, this, my subjective reality tells me that because I can't see God's activity, then God's not at work. Because I can't see the things that I need right in front of me because I don't know the next step, then that must mean God's not going to provide for me. Man, and God doesn't want us to live like that. Here's one of the, the other ways that I think my subjective reality and my objective reality don't match Maybe you can identify with me. I don't see myself like God sees me. Like, can we be honest? I don't see myself like God sees me. I don't know if you wrestle with that, but man, there are days where I function on the premise that like I'm an orphan, that there's nobody to care for me. I'm reminded of a scripture that says, cast your cares. Right? That, that God has his loving arms open for his children, and we can bring our cares and concerns to him. And oftentimes, even though I'm a son, I wrestle, I struggle, I get a little fearful, because I don't see myself like God sees me. Here's the last one. It's hard to believe. See, in the world today, for me, the reality is that it's hard for me to believe that God says who I am when everything else tells me that I'm not. When my own mind, my own experiences tell me that I'm not right now, currently this week, man, I experienced something very embarrassing in my personal life. And it was hard. And Renaissance, I can tell you, it's very hard, even though I'm standing here before you, I needed God to come in. I needed the Holy Spirit to testify with my spirit because I struggled in that moment to believe that I was a son. And then the rest of the days, I, I start thinking that God is actually going to penalize me for what I've done, and God doesn't want to penalize you. God wants to win you back. See, there's the truth that we don't live out of our objective reality because we don't see God's activity. We don't see ourselves the way God sees us. And quite frankly, it's just really hard to believe. And here's what I love about this text. And there's more we're going to see. What Paul is saying is, listen, Christian, he went all the way. He wrote a letter to Rome to tell them in the largest sense to tell them, listen, you have to hear the gospel. You have to know these things like you know them. And I think he says the same to us today, and check it out, assurance, this is what Paul wants us to hear today, assurance is everything, and God wants you and I to have it. Let's turn back to the scripture in Romans 8, 
verse 15, I want to highlight a couple things there. Paul says this, you, the Christian, did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And listen, there are some powerful claims here. And this is why Paul is a dope teacher, because I believe his heart was for the Christian to to actually live out of their objective, live out of the objective reality. Here's what we see Paul says. Paul says, we have the spirit of adoption. And Paul uses this phrase to highlight actually what it means to be a Christian. Listen to what he says earlier in Romans 8, verse 9. He says this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Here's what happens when, you, when, when, a, when a person is converted to begin to believe in who Jesus is. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes and he makes that heart, that human heart, his residence. And it's there where he, the conversation about who you are actually happens. See, you and I, because of sin, have lost our rights as part of the heavenly family, and and God, through Jesus, has given us access again. Now, unfortunately, there are some cases where those who are adopted are still seen or feel in themselves as outsiders. And so, so what's happening here is, although we've been adopted, although you and I have been stamped with God's approval that we are his, his children, there are still times that we feel like outsiders and not a part of the family of God. But Paul wants us to know that the truth is you and I were adopted. This is the objective truth, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you feel it, whether or not you have or see all the benefits of the adoption playing out in your life. Paul is saying, God is saying that I have adopted you. And I want to highlight one of those privileges. Paul goes on in the latter part of the verse. He says, you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And see, that word Abba means Father. But it has this connotation to it. It has this idea of Daddy. And it has this affection. It has this, this tender attachment to it. Renaissance, when is the last time you went to God and you cried, Daddy? Paul is saying, listen, the objective reality is you've been adopted, and as, someone, as an adopted son and daughter, you now are able to say to God, you are my Daddy. Paul used this metaphor of adoption to convey the truth that even though uh, you may not feel uh, as part of the, the, the family of God, you still can access all the privileges as someone who was born into the family of God. Man, I remember the first time, I don't know if you guys know, my wife and I have a blended family, um, and my wife had two beautiful daughters before we got married, and I remember the first time my youngest daughter called me daddy. I remember it like it was yesterday, man, for, for much when Heather and I got together, she called me partner. <laughs> Because she forgot my name. <laughs> so she's like, Mommy, that's partner. It's like, oh, that, that was endearing too, right? To call me partner, I felt that was sweet. But man, I remember 
the moment when she came to me and she said, Daddy, man, and man, I wonder if the text today would move us in such a way that we, that we begin to believe our objective reality and we begin to go to God and we say, Abba, Father, that we see his loving, caring hands and no matter what we do, no performance is too good, no performance is too bad for us to run and cry and call him Abba, Daddy. See, this metaphor of adoption helps us understand a little deeply this concept of assurance. And here's how. See, we were adopted by grace. See, it has major spiritual implications. You and I were adopted by grace. And here's what the gospel says, that you and I were orphans. We were sitting um, outside of the family of God due to our condition, and we had uh, no recourse. We had no way of actually getting back into the family of God on our own. And what God says is he goes to the adoption agency, and he looks around, and he says, you. He says, you, that's who I want. That's who I want. I want you to be my beloved son and daughter. And then he, and, and he doesn't uh, uh, make this point known, but we know, because we're adopted, we know, and we should know that we didn't deserve it. And we should know that we didn't earn it. And what the grace of adoption says is that you and I cannot unearn it. It says that God has taken you and I and he has made us children of God. Whether we believe it, or feel like it, or not. Here's the second thing adoption does. There's, a, there's all these privileges. I hinted at some of these in already, but uh, there's the privilege of adoption. And I want to make a quick note in, in, in verse 14 where, where Paul says, for all who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. In some translations it says children, but in, in the original language, Paul uses this word, for son, that means someone who is doing what their father does. And so we have this privilege to follow after God. We get to call the God of the universe, Abba, Daddy, because of the grace of adoption. And then we get the privilege to actually live from his place of power. We get to live out our lives with him as a part of who we are. Man, one of the best privileges that hits me when I was reading this passage is access. We get access to God. See, back in the, in the old times, in the Old Testament, there was uh, this place called the Holy of Holies, and it was this real spiritual holy place where people could not enter. Only once a year, a priest could enter there. Um, and it's known that uh, usually you had to tie a rope around yourself to actually go in there just in case you wasn't right and you dropped dead. They had to pull you out. It's a real thing. And man, the Bible says that there was this curtain, there's this division because we couldn't get there. And when Jesus Christ died and he rose, that separation between us and God was ripped in two. And we now have access. We can approach God's throne boldly. Renaissance, don't miss that as a privilege that you now have been adopted. And as a result, you can approach God boldly. And see, here's what happened. I love how Jesus says this in the scripture. Jesus says, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you friends. Because, friend, because a slave doesn't know 
what the master is doing. And, and Paul makes this contrast in, contrast in verse 15. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not the spirit that God's put into you and I. He's put the spirit of adoption. God doesn't want us living like servants. He wants us living as sons. You know why? Because a servant is scared and timid. A son is bold and confident. A servant obeys because of fear. A son obeys out of reverence. A servant lives anxious, and a son lives freely. God, how I pray to believe that. A servant sees himself apart from their master. No servant wants to be associated with their master, while a son sees himself in the image of his father. Man, this, this resonates deep to me. I lost my dad three years ago, as many of you may know. And man, I just love it when people say, yo, you walk just like your daddy. And man, my hope is that I can make that spiritual correlation. That man, when I walk this earth, that I would believe so much that I'm a child of God, that when people see me and then uh, they have this idea about who God is, they, they, they know God or they want to know God, they look at me and they say, man, I want to know who your daddy is because you walk like him. You talk like him. You love like him. You forgive like him. You're generous like him. Man, Renaissance, so often we live out of our subjective reality, and Paul is saying, you don't have to. God wants you to be assured about who you are so that you could live boldly and confidently. A servant has no hope. A son's hope is attached to his relationship with his father. And lastly, this is how I think assurance, I mean, excuse me, adoption uh, drills down this idea of assurance for, our, for us. See, there's work that comes with adoption. Not work to be adopted, but work to trust and believe that you are. See, you have to actively, what I love about this passage, when Paul says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit, what I imagine is that, yo, the Holy Spirit busts in the door of our heart, and he's saying, oh, no, no, stop telling yourself those lies. It's not true. You are a son of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are loved by God. The Holy Spirit comes, and he tells us those object what the objective reality is and our job. The job of the Christian, I hope you leave this week, the job for you and I is on a daily basis to fight to trust, to work to believe that you are adopted, to work out, man, the times in your life when it just doesn't feel like God is treating you like a son or a daughter. See, because here's what we miss. Sometimes we see God with the wrong lens. God even disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12 tells us. It, even in God's discipline, he's so gracious and so loving. He never wants you to forget that you're a child. Oftentimes, I, I think about when I discipline my boys, and my wife and I are having conversations about that. And I know that when I get really upset, I can't discipline them because it's only out of my emotion. But when I stop and I adore them because they're my sons, some of their things I laugh at, some of their things I beat them for, but I relish 
And I, rev- I, I sit in the moment and remember that they are my sons. And I handle them accordingly. And just like Axel and AJ have to work to believe that even in my discipline, I love them and that they are my sons, the same is the work for us, the believers, the Christians in the room. We have to believe that we have been and are adopted by God. I love how Jesus says it in the text this way. There's a man who comes to him, and he asks, Lord, what do I need to inherit eternal life? God looks at him, and he says, believe in the one who is sent. Man, I love that story. I love that interaction. God doesn't give him a whole list of rules. He tells him to believe in Renaissance what What I think God is telling you and I today, we have to believe that we are sons and daughters of God because the one who has been sent has paid the price to make sure that is so. I'll close with this. Um, Even though I know I have to work to trust, even though I know that this is part of what I have to do as a son or, or, or you have to do as a son or daughter of God, I know that God will meet me. There's another story in the Gospels where Jesus comes down from a mountain, and there's a man who has a sick son, and his son is having seizures. He's taking his son to the disciples, and the disciples can't do anything about it. And he gets frustrated in his desperation. He runs to Jesus when he sees him, and he says, can't you help me? Can you please uh, heal my boy? Jesus says, do you believe? He says, and this is the realest thing that has ever been written in the Bible, in my opinion. This, is, this sits with me, and I hope it sits with you this week. The man says back to Jesus, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe this week, maybe today, you came to service, and you needed to believe. And maybe you didn't quite have all the mustard, and you're just saying, God, help me in my unbelief. I want you to know that God wants you to be so certain of who you are in him that he'll meet you there. He'll even meet you in your questions just so you will know exactly who you are. Let me pray. God, thank you for what you've done for us, who you say we are. God, would we be so enamored with the truth of who you are, would we know our objective reality to the point where it seeps into our subjective reality and we are able to live that out? Daddy, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.